If you are visiting with us this morning, uh, our sermon series from Palm Sunday to Good Friday to this morning is set in chapter 12 of John's Gospel. And as I've said before, this chapter, this chapter 12, is a hinge connecting the beginning chapters of John's Gospel with the ending chapters of John's Gospel. See, there's the, there's the hinge in the middle. Our text this morning, verses 44 to 50, marks this turning point in a unique way. It marks the end of Jesus' public ministry as he turns to minister privately to his disciples. In chapter 13, Jesus will go to the upper room with his disciples and close the doors, and he'll instruct and prepare his disciples for what is to come, and then all of the events leading up to his death, burial, and resurrection will unfold. And in these verses, Jesus preaches to the crowd that has all of the same people in it that were there at the Passover, or at the uh, a triumphal entry. So we could call this Jesus' farewell sermon. As a farewell sermon, we, he must, we have to think that, that he thinks that what he says matters. It's the last time he's preaching in public. He knows his hour has come. He's not going to hold anything back. This is what Jesus wants everyone to hear before they next see him on a cross and hear of his resurrection. So it's also kind of a summary sermon. It's just a few verses. Everything Jesus says in these verses, he has said before in John's gospel. The fact that he's repeating them doesn't mean we should ignore them. The fact that he's repeating them means that he's emphasizing their importance. And so we should listen all the more. Listen as I read John chapter 12, verses 44 to 50. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my word and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say, as the Father has told me. Well, Jesus cries out to be heard by the large crowd in Jerusalem, gathered for the preparations for the Passover. And the the first thing Jesus summarizes for the crowd is his identity, who he is. This is Jesus preaching on Jesus. And the first thing he says is that to believe in him is also to believe in God. Make no mistake, Jesus is appealing to the crowd that whoever heard of him, and the crowd who has heard that he has raised Lazarus from the dead, and the crowd who knows that the religious leaders are out to get him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees who are plotting to kill him, he's appealing to all of them who claim to believe in the Father. 
And he's appealing them that if they believe in the Father, then they must believe in him also. There's a complete oneness in God the Father and God the Son. It has always been this way. John writes at the beginning of his gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is that living Word. There's perfect unity between Jesus and His Father who sent Him. If you claim to be a believer in God and do not believe in Jesus, you are an unbeliever. You're still lost in your sins and wandering away from God. Jesus says in chapter 14, verse 6 of John, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There is this unity such that you must believe in Jesus in order to believe in God. And you must believe that God has sent him. God sent Jesus into the world on a divine mission to seek and save the lost. Jesus tells us only God believers in the world, or Jesus tells this to the only God believers in the world, the Jews, that to deny God has sent Jesus is to deny God himself. And while praying to the Father in John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is a necessary belief. That's why Jesus can say that to see him is to see God, the God who sent him. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And we can add the Holy Spirit if we'd like. One God in nature and substance and essence manifest in three distinct persons, blessed Trinity. When the disciples beheld Jesus, they beheld God. They didn't quite understand that. So Jesus told them in chapter 14, verses 8 and 9, Philip, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Oh, Philip, <laughs> nice job. Philip is so accommodating to the Lord Jesus Christ. Way, way to make it easy for him. You know, you don't have to spend these three years pouring all these truths into us, nurturing us. You don't have to do all that. Just show us the Father. We'll be satisfied. And then, you know, you can go, you can go take a seat and take it easy from now on. Well done, Peter. Well done, Philip. And Jesus says to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Ouch. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You see, it's the gracious plan of God to send his Son to represent him perfectly, taking on sinless human form so that we would see him. And through the sent Son, to better see and understand and to come to know God. Not just about him, but to know him relationally. Paul explains this to us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. When you see Jesus' image, you see the image of God. The author of Hebrew tells us that God has communicated to his people over centuries in his spoken word, words that have been written down. But he has now spoken to us in his Son. 
This is the living word of God described in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This crowd of Jews in Jerusalem see a country rabbi and his poor rabble followers. Jesus tells them that with believing eyes, they would see the bright and shining radiance of the glory of God whose Passover they've come to celebrate. Don't forget that story of the gospel is is wrapped up in the glory of the Passover that they've come here to celebrate. Jesus is telling them to overlay these two images, to line up these two images, and see the light, and see him and the Father who sent him. Jesus has come into the world of darkness, a world ignorant of God, filled with the depravity of sin. Jesus has come into a world that is perishing to shine the light of life. Verse 46 serves as a summary of Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees back in John chapter 8, verses 12 to 19. Turn to John chapter 8, just back a couple of chapters. John chapter 8, find verse 12. So John records in verse 12, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus makes the claim that he is the very light of God that brings life to those in this darkness who would believe in him. And then in verse 15, the Pharisees Pharisees render a verdict on Jesus' claim to be light, saying, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Sorry. Foul. It's not enough for you to witness to yourself. You need a second person to bear witness to your testimony before it can be considered to be true. So we've ruled it out of order. To which Jesus answers in verse 14, and and I think we can call this Jesus-splaining. Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. See, Jesus knows that they are ignorant of what is true of him. They just prefer their own darkness rather than God's light. You think about that, dear friend. You see, you are not fit to sit in judgment of Jesus. You are not a qualified judge. Because you are of created flesh, and he is the creator God. Even so, he has not come to render judgment, but to shine the light of life to those who are under judgment. He goes on to explain in verse 16. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two peoples is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And God the Father is qualified to judge what is right, good, and true. In verse 19, the Pharisees prove that they are living in darkness. They ask, where is the Father? And listen to Jesus' answer. You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, 
you would know my Father also. If any of those Pharisees in chapter 8 are the Pharisees who have hoped to kill Jesus before he preached this farewell sermon in chapter 12, I'll bet they're pretty chapped right about now. Wait till they hear what he says next. Verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. It's the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Now, this may seem a little contradictory at first. I understand that, but I assure you it's not. Jesus did not come to judge the world because he did not have to. This dark and sinful world is already under the just judgment of God. There is no one righteous, not one. The well-earned wages of our sin is death. It is death that reigns in this dark world. Have you noticed nobody gets out of this world alive? And if you reject Jesus and reject the one who sent him into this world and ignore the words that he is preaching to you this morning, then you will remain in your sin and you will remain in darkness and you will be judged by the word of Christ on the last day that is yet to come. But Jesus did not come to judge the world, but to save it. To save even you. If you hear his words and keep them, how do you you keep God's words? How do you keep Jesus' words? He's telling us by believing in the God, the Son, and God the Father who sent him. By seeing Jesus. Now that you have light to see him with and no longer walk in the darkness of your sin. So that on the last day you would not be judged as guilty but justified as righteous in Christ. If you would walk in the light as he is in the light, then the blood of Christ will cleanse you from all of your sin and you will have fellowship with him and the Father. Very simply, You keep Jesus' words by obeying Jesus' words. You see, you can't have Jesus on your terms. You must have him on his terms. Turn away from your words and your sinful ways, which bring only death. Follow Jesus' words and Jesus' ways, which always lead to life. You will know... Jesus, in one of two ways, as your Savior or as your judge. If you go your own way, if you choose to remain in darkness, that Savior will be your judge on the last day. If you would turn to him, the Son of Man who was lifted up on a cross to die to atone for your sins, you cannot remain in darkness because he will bring you into his light and give you life. It's not only Jesus who says so. God the Father who sent him has issued this command for you to obey and live. Look at verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. 
What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. You see, God the Father issued a commandment to Jesus the Son. It's a commandment that Jesus obeyed. Everything that Jesus did and said is only what God commanded and everything that God commanded. And what is that commandment? God commanded Jesus to speak and accomplish eternal life. For us. When we push back, and we do, on total submission to God, when we push back on total obedience to his word, what we need to see is that Jesus himself is living in total obedience to that same word. It came from the Father. What God commands the Son to say is what Jesus is commanding us to do, to believe in him, to receive his light, to know the Father. But Jesus is not the only one to say this. And he's not, the Father has said this, and and he's not only saying it, it's not only words. He must bring the words about to be true. We read on Good Friday that now the hour has come for Jesus, the Son of Man, to be lifted up. Now Jesus would go to the cross and bear the judgment of God on our sin upon himself, to suffer the wages of our sin in his death. But how does Jesus obey God's commandment to eternal life if he dies on the cross? He must trust that God will raise him from the dead to life again. Jesus has already displayed his understanding of this. He has already displayed his power and authority over death when he raised Lazarus from the dead. When Jesus had arrived in Bethany, his friend Lazarus had been dead for four days and placed in a tomb. John records this in chapter 11, beginning in verse 21. Martha, Lazarus' sister, said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again on the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus prayed to his father then, in verse 43, and then he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out. Jesus commanded life, and Lazarus stopped being dead and lived. I mean, honestly, it looked like the end for Lazarus. He's he's dead, he's buried in a tomb. The mourners are all there weeping, but it's never quite the end when Jesus is around. After Jesus' farewell sermon, what we're looking at in John chapter 12, John John moves the story forward with one verse that sums up all of chapter 12, and it pushes everything forward to Jesus' resurrection. It's the very first verse of chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, 
He loved them to the end. So what about Jesus himself? When we were last together here on Good Friday, Jesus was dead. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had laid his cold, dead corpse in a tomb. That looked like the end. But it was not. We pick up in his own resurrection account in chapter 20. Turn to John chapter 20 and verse 1. Follow with me as I read along. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and, and the other disciple, that's John, by the way, who's writing, the, who's writing this gospel, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Mary didn't go into the tomb, but she runs to, she runs to John and Peter, and, and frankly, she starts the very first conspiracy theory about Jesus' resurrection, right? They, I don't know who, he's, they took him. He's gone. She has no expectation that dead Jesus is resurrected. Neither did the disciples. I mean, Peter and John should have said, Mary, settle down. He's probably on his way to us. He's probably walking this way right now. You might have passed him on the trail. But that's not what they say. They have no expectation of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In fact, what they do proves that that's completely not what they're thinking because they go to the last place he was reported not to be. So Peter ran out with John, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but John, younger and faster, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping, John looked in, and he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came and followed him in and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, the face cloth lying over there, which, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the clothes, but folded up in a place by itself, neatly set aside. And then John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw it and believed. What did he believe that he didn't believe already? He tells us, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. John's telling us that he's, that's when he came to believe in the resurrection. When he got to the empty tomb. But, and then there's this curious behavior. Then all the disciples went back to their homes. That doesn't look like belief in the resurrection. They didn't turn to one another and say, he is risen, he is risen indeed. They went back to their homes. And they closed the doors. I mean, isn't that interesting? They hid you can kind of understand. I mean, you probably wouldn't go out and proclaim until you can point to the body, right? There he is. They haven't seen him yet. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting because I think, I think there's a period in our lives when we're, when we're coming to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ when it's confusing like that. When we believe in him and yet we're, we're not quite sure what to do or quite sure what to say or how to prove that what we believe is true because we haven't grasped what faith feels like and acts like. And so we, we believe, but we're not sure. We want to say something, we don't say something. But it's not the end. It's not the end. Jesus is still ministering to our faith. And, and it's not the end here. Mary moves forward. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. 
And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. And they spoke to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? You see, Jesus is, Jesus is divinely not allowing Mary, uh, Martha to see, Mary to see who he is. And um, you know, he's not being cruel. He's working on her faith. He's giving her opportunities to think and to process. Why are you weeping? For the loss of one who's alive. Whom are you seeking? Because he's not gone, he's right here. He's just, he's just drawing on her faith. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, I have, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go up to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. I think there's a huge takeaway for us here. There's, there's no need to weep anymore. There's no need to weep anymore. Jesus is alive. There's no reason to weep anymore except to weep for joy. Jesus, the Son of Man who was lifted up on a cross, Jesus, the suffering servant who received the wrath of God for our sin upon himself, Jesus who was dead and buried, on the third day has risen from the grave and he's alive. See, Jesus' instructions to Mary not to cling to him were in one sense literal. Jesus... Jesus was not going to leave her again without saying goodbye. It's okay. You can let go of me. But in another sense, Jesus is instructing her that we no longer need to cling to Jesus physically in order to cling to Jesus. Even when Jesus ascends to the Father, we won't be separated from him. There is a way for us to cling to Jesus without clinging to him physically. What is that? Obedience. Obedience. Believe in me by faith, see me by hope, and keep my words. Jesus is the very living word of God. Obey him, obey his words, and you will lay hold of Jesus and tightly cling to him in obedience to his word. Knowing that if you should let loose, if your grip should slip, it's not the end. Because he is holding tightly to you. Because he is God's command to eternal life. And he will love you to the end. 
he preached this to us in his last sermon. Cling to me by obeying my word. Pick up in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, the disciples have a reason to fear the Jews. I mean, it's, it's still ringing in their ears, the crowd yelling, Crucify him! Crucify him! And they had every reason to believe that they were next, right after Lazarus. And they're hiding for their lives because they fear death. Suddenly, Jesus appears in the room with them, and he gives them his peace. The peace that Jesus gives his disciples is, is peace with God. And because their sins have been atoned for, they, they need no longer fear death. By faith, they're justified in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that the threat of the Jews to hunt them down and kill them which, by the way, will actually happen, has gone away. It means, what can man do to me? Now that I am in the grip of Christ and the Father. It means that to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does it matter if evil men put you to death on account of Christ knowing that you will be resurrected in him. You're not quite sure that you're confident in that. And here's the reason why. Our problem is that we want to, not that we want to simply escape death, but we want to escape discomfort and inconvenience. We want only to gain leisure and ease. Too often we equate easy living with holy living. But Jesus has told us to serve him and follow him. You have no promise of ease and leisure in this life. You do have a promise, Jesus promised, that you will be treated as he's been treated. You are no better than him. And you have the promise of his resurrection power to take up your cross and follow him, to serve him and honor him, and in your obedient love for him, you will be honored by the Father. Brothers and sisters, it's too small a thing to live in fear of lack of comfort. It's a far greater thing to live in the peace of Christ that overcomes all of our fears especially the fear of death. Brothers and sisters, the darkness will not overtake you, and you will not come under judgment on the last day. That is what the Savior of the world preached to us in his last sermon. Look at the last couple of verses, 21 and 22. Jesus said to them again, 
peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So Jesus repeats his promise of peace. And he adds that he's sending them. And then he says these two things that are, that are often misunderstood because of their timing and because of their wording. Jesus does not literally breathe the Holy Spirit onto his disciples here. But he is linking the giving of the Holy Spirit to himself. And he is signaling that they very soon will receive that Holy Spirit about 50 days later at Pentecost. About the forgiveness of sins. When, when we see this if-then statement, you notice it's an if-then statement in verse 23. Our automatic reflex is to assume that that's causal. That this causes that. If we forgive them, we cause their forgiveness by God. That's literally not the case. Grammatically, their being forgiven or not forgiven is in the passive, meaning we don't cause them. They're not linked in a causal if-then statement. God does not grant or withhold forgiveness because we, his disciples, do or don't. So Jesus is, again, linking these things together. When he pours out his Holy Spirit on the disciples, they will participate in God's saving mission, which has to do with the forgiveness of sins. The disciples will speak God's gospel commandment to life. God will forgive all who repent and believe in Jesus. And God will not forgive any who do not repent and believe in him. So why are these verses here? Because they link spirit-filled gospel proclamation to Jesus' words in verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Hey, that sounds familiar. I remember Jesus preaching about the sent one. As the Father has sent me. In his last sermon, Jesus preached that his Father had sent him into the world five times in that short sermon. We've heard and believed and even understand this concept. God the Father sent God the Son to proclaim eternal life that comes by believing in him and the one who has sent him. And now, in the same way, Jesus is sending his disciples into the world. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. <laughs> Poor disciples. I mean, they've been through the ringer. They're just settling into the new reality that they have eternal peace with God. They're still wrapping their minds around the truth that Jesus, having been resurrected, they too, by faith, are resurrected in him so that they need not fear death. They're just grasping this. It's all new. It's wonderful, but it's a lot to take in. And Jesus, without delay, moves on to the next step. No time to get comfortable. Now's not the time to relax. You are not meant to rest in this peace. Not yet. It's resurrection time. And we've been sent to proclaim it. Jesus is sending us in the same way the Father sent him. And how did the Father send the Son? Well, we have a sermon that instructs us on exactly that. Three things. First, 
See Jesus and believe in God. He is the creator. He made you in his likeness, male and female, to bear his image and to enjoy his goodness. So see him and believe him. Second, obey Jesus' words and walk in the light of his truth. You know, in John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus prays for us that we would do this, that this would be the case. This is what he says to the Father when he prays. While I was with them, that is the disciples, he's praying to the Father, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that scripture might be fulfilled, that's Judas. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the world truth. Cling to Jesus by obeying his word. Living out your faith in service to his true word and your king. Third, speak his words. Only his words. All of his words that command life. We have been commissioned to participate in God's saving mission. Christ is building his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. By his death, burial, and resurrection, he has overcome the world. So let us be his sent people. Do not weep. He's alive. Do not cling to him as an excuse to not go as he's commanded you, but cling to him in obedience to his command to eternal life. Proclaim his resurrection from the dead. Command sinners to see and believe in him. And go without fear, but with the peace of God and and the power of his resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending your Son to be our Savior, to redeem our lives from the pit, to give us what we need so that we would live and not die, which is himself. We praise you and we ask that you would help us to know and walk in the power of Christ's resurrection to see our Lord, to live his truth, to proclaim his gospel, that others may come to see him. It's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.